Greetings and welcome back to Witnesses of the King. This is an exposition of the book of Acts. My name is Eric Newcomer and I'll be taking us through Acts chapter 3. We'll be taking a look at a miracle that was performed by the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. And this was shortly after the action that we read in Acts chapter 2. So what this series is endeavoring to do is to go through the book of Acts and take a good look at what happens in the very early church. How God, through the Holy Spirit, empowers the disciples to carry out the mission that Jesus gave them to do. And so far we've seen many incredible things. In Acts chapter 2 we saw the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples and uh, cause them to speak in foreign languages that were understood by the hearers. They proclaimed the truth about God. And a, a sermon of Peter is summarized there, which we took a good close look at as he uh, referred to the Old Testament, showed how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of those things, and then called people to repentance and to join them in baptism. And so it was a, a great look at some of the early preaching that was done in that summary sermon. The end of the uh, ch of chapter 2, we find the early church and what the activities were that they were doing. They were continually dedicated to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, and to fellowship together. And so these were uh, very important times as the infant church was getting on its feet. Uh, it started with quite a bang, with 3,000 added to their number on the day of Pentecost. And uh, the Lord continued adding to their number daily those who believed. And so the gospel continued to be going out. In Acts chapter 3, we come to Peter and John who are going up to the temple for a time of prayers about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, they're, they're going together. Uh, that's called the ninth hour. And it looks like it was their habit of attending prayer at specific times at the temple, along with the Jews who were there uh, and was the tradition of many at the time. So we're going to read the first 10 uh, verses of Acts chapter 3. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at those and then we'll endeavor to go just a little further into the next section to see what happens next. Uh, let's begin by taking a look at those scriptures. Here it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, it's our earnest wish this day that as we read this account, you will apply it to our hearts. You will help us to discern by the power of your Spirit what the truths are here that we need to understand and apply to our lives. Lord, help us to be willing 
to be receptive to your word this day. Help us to be changeable, shapeable in your hands so that we may glorify you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first most obvious thing here is that there was a miracle. And uh, yes, I've made a, a <laughs> I've made a slide to help you with the fact. There was a miracle. That seems to be the point of the 10 verses that we read. This is the most obvious thing. But something I want to point out to you is that this was a genuine miracle. And the evidence of this being such a genuine miracle are right there in the text. We saw that this man was known to all, that even after being healed, the people recognized him as, hey, that's the guy that used to sit out there at the gate. Because once someone takes ownership of someone who is hurting or lame or something like this, it, it becomes their way of life. This is true to this day. This becomes their habit. Like, you know, I want to get up in the morning. I'm going to pick up so-and-so on the way to work. I'm going to drop him off there at the such-and-such place where he'll be able to beg and be able to get what he needs for the day. And before a lot of, of formalized social programs, uh, people like this poor man depended greatly upon the generosity of those that he saw day in and day out. And so they would lay him at the gate. He would ask alms for the day. That would give him sufficient uh, earnings to, to be able to feed himself. And he would come back and do it the next day. And so this man's backstory was known for many decades. We find out later uh, in chapter 4 that this man was 40 years old at this time. So, so he had been there a great deal of time, probably since he was a teenager, uh, begging for alms. And so he would be well-known, familiar to the regulars at the temple. The second thing that makes this very interesting is the fact that he was born lame. So this can't be explained away by some coincidental recovery. We cannot suggest that this man was a fraud and could really walk because this was something he was born lame. His testimony of, of being disabled went for decades and decades of atrophy. If you understand uh, what it means to not have use of limbs of the body, atrophy sets in to where even if there were some kind of elimination of the the problem causing the paralysis this man would still be unable to walk because of the weakness of his limbs and that's why it it takes pains here the physician luke who wrote the book of acts uh, is careful to say his feet and ankles became strengthened then he walked this would be years of physical therapy should someone be able to heal someone born lame even if they could provide to them use of their limbs it would take years of physical therapy for their limbs to be in such a shape as to allow them to walk let alone leap uh, so this is a powerful and important miracle and it's a genuine miracle. This healing was also instantaneous. It didn't happen over time. There was no lengthy prayer. He was not screened beforehand in the other tent, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, to see if he was a highly suggestible person that could potentially overcome this with the right mindset. No, this, this was a complete, uh, instant and total healing. And the healing was total. It was complete. He went from having these atrophied legs that had never been used to walk for 40 years of his life to walking and leaping and, of course, praising God. So just like Jesus, 
whose miracles were always genuine, now the apostles do one just as it was foretold, for Jesus told them they would do the same and more as he did. And what this is designed to do is show that the kingdom has come. It was plain throughout the Old Testament that this coming kingdom, that this Messiah, this one who would reign on the throne of David would come, and with his kingdom uh, would come healing. This is established all the way back in the, the book of Isaiah, and it's uh, mentioned in the book of Malachi. I'll not take you there for sake of time, but also very clear in Matthew and Mark that this healing uh, was something of a fulfillment, that it was the mark of who Jesus was. Sickness, as you know, is a result of the fall of mankind. And there was no sickness nor death in the world until mankind had sinned. It's sin or sickness is part of the curse. And if you think about it, sickness is a type of death. It's like death light. Okay. If there's anything less than death, it is some kind of sickness, some kind of an ailment or some kind of a, a disability of the physical body. And so this is indeed a result of the fall. And therefore in the scriptures, what we find is we find that sickness then becomes typical of sin. In other words, it being a result of sin, often when sickness is talked about or healing given, it is speaking of sin and it is speaking of being healed of sin. This was Israel's primary problem. When you read the Old Testament, it is unmistakable that the difficulty that God is having with the nation Israel as he has appointed them to be his witness to the world, he appointed them as the ones through whom Christ would come. It is very obvious from the Old Testament their greatest problem was sin. For God had provided them everything they needed. He provided them freedom from slavery in Egypt. He provided them with a land to live in, with vineyards already made, with cities already built, with everything they could possibly need to survive. And yet they struggled and they struggled because of sin. It's evident throughout the Bible ever since the fall of mankind, ever since the curse of death. On Adam and Eve. And this is uh, something for us to take a look at is this, that God accompanies then the teaching of Jesus and the apostles with signs and wonders, including healing, to prove the validity of the message, to prove the identity of Jesus, and to prove the truthfulness of what it was he was saying. And that was this, that Jesus came to save sinners. And this miracle in Acts chapter 3 was done for the same reason that Jesus did miracles. He, the, the healing of the paralytic is important as, as, uh, and I believe that's in John chapter, no, John chapter 9 is the healing of the blind man. Uh, this healing of the paralytic that occurs, uh, that is accounted in Matthew chapter 9 and, uh, and elsewhere. The healing of the paralytic is when four men bring a man to Jesus who has been paralyzed. And they bring this man and Jesus looks at the man and, and the presumption is these men bring him to be healed by Jesus. Jesus takes one look at this guy and says, your sins are forgiven you. Well, that was provocative 
to the leaders that were around him, to the scribes and the Pharisees, they said, wait a minute, who can forgive sin but God? Well, that was exactly the point. Jesus was claiming to be God. He was claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. And then Jesus says, you know, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And then tells the man, rise, pick up your mat and walk. And so Jesus made it crystal clear that he did these miracles to show that he could also forgive sin because you can't show someone sins being forgiven, but you can show somebody a miracle. And if you could reverse the natural course, if you could interfere with the natural order, if you could do something as we would call supernatural, then you must be the one who can forgive sins. You must be at least from God you must be God himself. And so this was uh, how Jesus did this. Another good example is when John the Baptist is in prison for saying the wrong or the right things to the wrong people. Uh, John the Baptist sends word via his disciples to Jesus. Now, we don't know why he, he sent this word. We don't know if he was doubting. We don't know if he did this just for the sake of his disciples or whatever. He sends his disciples to Jesus and Jesus takes John's disciples and drags them around with him for a day. And he does all kinds of uh, miracles, healings and various kinds of healings and preaching of the gospel. And then he says, here's your answer to John. Go back and tell him what you saw. Tell him about the healing, that the blind receive the sight, that the lame walk, etc." And that's his answer to John as to whether Jesus was truly the Messiah, truly the one to come. So his answer to John was given clearly in these miracles. He showed him who he was. He didn't just tell him. He didn't just claim. So Acts 3 then begins to make sense because if God is going to attest to the message of the apostles the same way he did to Jesus, well, of course, there's going to be a miracle involved. And this miracle is done for that same reason. And let me ask you a question and think about this carefully. If God is truly in charge of everything, if God truly knows what's going on, if God is truly interested in saving people in this world, why was this man lame from birth? And why was he sitting at the, at the gate beautiful to the temple? Well, I tell you why. So that God could be glorified in him. That's Jesus' answer in John chapter 9 when he heals a blind man. He heals a man born blind. And the disciples begin with the question, why is this guy blind? Is it for some sin he committed or his parents committed? And Jesus is like, no, it's so that the, the works of God can be displayed in him, that God can be glorified in him, is what he is saying. Jesus said that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so this is for the same reason. This lame man is here. He is lame so that the works of God can be displayed, so people can, can see the power of God through the apostles and then hear their message and themselves hear the message of salvation and be saved. Now that we have the word of God, the emphasis of gospel work has transitioned to that word. It's already been proven by the initial signs and wonders. How do we know that Jesus was who he said he was? Well, he did signs and miracles and things, and then he preached the gospel in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. 
Well, how do we know the apostles carried forth the same message? Well, because number one, we can read it in the New Testament, but then we can also see that in the New Testament, their message is endorsed by these signs and miracles. And it's like, well, how can we know that these signs and miracles happened? We have the Word of God that tells us so. And that sounds like circular reasoning, I know, but understand this, that it is the Holy Spirit of God that uses the Scriptures to convict us of their validity, of their truth. These things are spiritually discerned. Without the Spirit of God, it's impossible to understand the Word of God and so be born again. Because people are constantly asking, why don't we have as many miracles today? Why are things today not more like Acts chapter 3? And it's simply this, because we now have the entire Word of God. And it's the Word that God uses to save. He says all through the, the New Testament that it is the Word of God, the message of God preached, that must be believed for people to be saved. The Word is what Jesus expected us to be using and to be saved with. Look what he says in his prayer in the garden when he's with his disciples the night before he was taken. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their Word. It was an expectation of Jesus as he prays for us, because we're those who believed through the word, as he prays for us, that we would come to faith through the word of the apostles, which is the New Testament and the gospel as it is proclaimed this day from the New Testament and Old Testament together as our text. The Holy Spirit testifies to the word. The miracles are recorded for us If you would believe something when you saw it with your own eyes, with the help of the Spirit, you will believe it when you simply read about it or when you simply hear it proclaimed by somebody. Jesus even announces a special blessing on those who didn't see him resurrected. You know, Thomas says, I won't believe until I see it because he missed Jesus' first appearance to the disciples in the upper room. And Then Jesus shows up a second time to them in the upper room, and this time Thomas is there, and Thomas believes. (laughs) And Jesus says, "Have, Have you believed because you have seen me? He says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so the expectation is that most will not see, but they will believe. Do you realize many thousands of people saw Jesus' miracles. In the miraculous feedings alone, there were 5,000 and there were 4,000, 9,000 people. Yeah, maybe there's some overlap. So we know at least 5,000 people saw this miraculous feeding. That just counts the men. But yet, when Jesus was resurrected, he appeared only to believers. And the most that he ever appeared to at one time, according to Paul, was 500. And so of all these thousands of people that saw all these miracles, only a few believed. Now add to that this fact, there is no command in the New Testament for any of us to do miracles. There's not even a command for the apostles to do miracles. Jesus just simply predicts that miracles will accompany their proclamation. 
They're commanded, as we are, to be witnesses, to make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. He doesn't say go and make disciples by showing them really cool stuff. And Paul even tells Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out. His last words to Timothy are not, make sure you do a bunch of miracles to get attention. No, he says, make sure you preach the word. That's the main thing. And so it's this word of God that is the emphasis. We crave miracles and we crave sensations because by our sinful nature, we're lazy. (laughs) We want shortcuts to evangelism. We wish something miraculous would happen in our church, that word of that would spread and that many people would come wanting to see the miracle or whatever and hear the gospel message. We don't like all that studying and that witnessing and that awkward talking to people about the gospel. It's all so tiring to us. If only God would just do a miracle, we think, then then many would believe. And I tell you the truth, that is not so. We have the Holy Scriptures that show us that is not so. That the thousands and thousands that saw Jesus' miracles, only a handful believed. And of the many thousands that see the miracles of the apostles, only a handful end up believing. And so the Gospels, the book of Acts, prove this to be true. Another important reason, and very important reason, I think it's often overlooked by by many people, is this. And, And I think this is overlooked in a couple different ways, which I'll explain here shortly, is Another reason that we should expect signs and wonders to diminish in the life of the church and and, and not be the central focus of the church is this. False signs and wonders will be a tool for the Antichrist and his predecessors. That is all false teachers. They will have these false signs and wonders in order to deceive people. And we know this to be true. We know that that it is a given to, you know, that, that Satan has a great deal of power, that he can fake these things. Uh, we see Satan do somewhat miraculous things in his temptation of Jesus, takes him here and there, shows him things. And we also see, um, very importantly, remember when Moses showed up in the land of Egypt to bring the people out of Egypt and God gives him a few signs that he can do to prove to the people who he is? Well, he does these signs in front of Pharaoh and what happens? Pharaoh's magicians mimic the signs. Now, to a point, they had their limits, but nevertheless, they did things that we can't explain. And in fact, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, when we get there, you'll see they meet a miracle worker who had the Samaritans amazed. Apparently, this guy had performed signs and wonders. And so the truth is this, that the evil one and his minions fake miracles. It's part of what will deceive people in the last days. Let me take you to a verse that will show you that. If we look in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Well, why would God do that? Because with all wicked deception, it's for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Well, the question immediately, I hope the question's on your mind, how can we tell 
If I see a miracle now, how can I tell? Is this legitimate? Is this from God? Or is this something that is perhaps one of these false signs and wonders from the evil one? Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God handled this for the people of Israel, and it is the same to this day. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. So you see the, the immediate application here, right? Um, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And you say, well, some people would protest and say, well, that's not fair. God doesn't test people. God shouldn't test people. That's just not fair of him to do. Look, if you love God, you'll pass the test. Well, then why would God do that? If he knows you're going to pass the test, why test you? So that he can be glorified and you can be encouraged and strengthened. There's many great benefits of this that God would do. But take a look at this. If you love God, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to know that this is a false prophet. You're going to know the truth of the gospel and you're going to be able to spot the fake immediately. Now, here's where this becomes relevant to us in this day. Because what this passage is saying is if the message, if this guy does a sign or wonder, that's not enough. You have to make sure his message is the right message. If he's telling you to go after some other gods, in other words, if he's not representing God clearly, because anything that's not a clear representation of God is really a false god, then this is not a true prophet. So the message has to match the truth. And that is how we understand. Watch the healers on TV. Watch these healing things that you see. And ask yourself this question, does the true gospel, and by the true gospel I mean the one Jesus and Peter and Paul preached, this gospel we're examining here in the book of Acts, the gospel that says we have all sinned, fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal salvation in Jesus Christ, which is available to us if we would but trust in him and repent of our sins. That's the true gospel. And anything less than that, anything less than repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, uh, anything more than it that adds works to it to, to make it possible to be saved, all those are lies. Is the true gospel preached when you see these miraculous happenings, these miraculous wonders? Does the preacher that does the healing, does he proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ? Or does he proclaim something more along the lines of material and temporal gain? Is he telling you to repent of your sins? Is he telling you that sin is your greatest problem? Or is he telling you that your lack of faith is what holds you back from having a better life? Is he merely proclaiming a better life? And worse yet, is he saying, claim your miracle today by sending money? If he's telling you to claim the miracle in your life, if he's telling you these kind of things, these are sure signs. This is not the true gospel. 
The true gospel is about sin and repentance, about eternal salvation, not temporal gain. Now, the gospel has much temporal gain. The gospel will improve your life because it will give you things that life cannot take from you. It will give you peace and hope and understanding. It will give you peace with God, which is the most important thing. And once your sins are forgiven, then nothing else seems to matter. And so the gospel has many benefits to it. But if this, if somebody comes preaching to you and shows you a sign or a wonder and then preaches to you, Jesus is here to dress up your life and make it better and give you a miracle, this is a false teacher and you need not listen to him. Now, I'm not suggesting that God does not act by saying these things. I'm not saying that he doesn't do healing, that he doesn't do uh, miracles and signs and wonders, because the fact is all healing is miraculous. All healing is from God. This is why we are commanded to pray for healing. From the book of James, he, tell, he asks us, if anyone among you is sick, have him call the, the elders to him and they should anoint him with oil and pray that he should be sick. But let me show you something in that passage of James right there. This is in James chapter five. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, why should you pray for something that's not going to happen? God wants us to pray and he's going to deliver the goods. Okay. He says the prayer of the faith will save the one who's sick. Isn't that an interesting choice of words? He doesn't say heal. He says save because he wants to make sure that in any of this, that the gospel message is central to it. You have sick or suffering loved ones. You go preach to them the gospel and pray for their healing. Because without the preaching of the gospel, there's no chance they're going to be saved. And without praying for their healing, I'm pretty sure they're not going to be healed. But if you pray, they might be. And so go and pray with your sick loved ones, but always preach them the gospel. The healing alone will not suffice to bring them to salvation. They must hear. And that is how people respond to the gospel. And so we should always indeed pray for healing. Uh, and all healing is from God. Now, that being said, there was a miracle. That's, that's still our first point we're on. No, the, the next two are not as long. But there was something else, too. There was a sermon. Because like I said, there's always the true gospel accompanying a true sign or wonder. And so this healing draws attention to people. And all these people gather around. And that's when Peter takes the opportunity to begin to preach. Now, we're going to go into more detail on this sermon of his next week because there's some details here that are not covered in Acts chapter 2, and I want to point those out. But I want you to notice in an overall kind of way the emphases in his sermon. Notice what Peter does not do. I'm going to read the text for you, and I want to see, I want you to see that he does not give an invitation for others to be healed. He commands them to repent of their sins. And this is powerfully important to understand. Take a look at this, what he says here. Um, he says um, in chapter, starting in verse 11 here, <laughs> I'm supposed to be in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Yeah, while he clung to Peter and John. So this, this man that was healed is clinging to Peter and John. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico 
called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your, also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Oh, what powerful words we see from our servant Peter that he gets up and proclaims, but notice what his topic was not. His topic was not the healing itself. The healing drew attention to it. The healing gave him a starting point. The healing was the opportunity for him to show that this Jesus is still going. That even though he was crucified and even though he was buried, he is still doing miracles. And this is powerfully important. And then he applies, he appeals to their sin in having betrayed or denied Jesus. And now we know that we all share in that, in that any of us have sinned, for Jesus came to bear the, the shame, to bear the, the wrath of God for all of us. And this is what Peter proclaims. In this sermon, Peter clearly defaults or defers to God as the source of the miracle. He doesn't take credit for himself. He says it's not our piety. That means it's, it's not how good we are. It's not how much faith we have. It's, it's not that we have power in and of ourselves. It's none of those things. It's, it's by faith through Jesus that this man was healed. This is the clear message of Peter. And so he shows that Jesus is still relevant, even though they crucified him. Think about what this fact does to the leaders, because this is only a couple months after Jesus had been crucified. 
And Jesus created such an uproar. For three years he did ministry and miracles and everything else and had this, this great following of people, though as we know most fell away uh, at his crucifixion. Nevertheless, they had to think, we finally got rid of this guy. We're finally over this guy, Jesus. Thank goodness we can put that behind us now. Let's get back to the business of the day. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up again. In, in the preaching of these apostles, in the power of their miracles. What a fantastic thing that the world will strike out and lash out against the gospel, but it will never squash it. There will always be a faithful remnant to preach the truth. And I hope that's what you're about. And that's indeed what we are about. So there was a miracle. And yes, there was a sermon that came with it. He took the occasion to preach about their sin, to command them to repent the truthfulness of his message and a testimony to the power of the risen Christ are shown by this great miracle and it gives the occasion. So the promise of God is that his word will do its work and indeed it does because there were results. There were results to this. The first result is obvious. The man was healed. The man was healed, miraculously, instantaneously, completely healed, so that many people saw, recognized who it was, and after his years of begging alms there at the gate, they recognized something has happened to this man. The next result is this, that Peter and John were arrested. If we look at Acts 4.3, we discover uh, this great truth. It says, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So a couple hours go by, they're preaching and teaching people and people are responding there in the temple and then they come and get arrested and they, they just put them away for the night. We'll get to that next or in two weeks. We'll see what it is that happened and, and how this uh, how the, the early church responded. But that Peter and John were arrested. And then the third result is this, um, that many believed. Look what it says in Acts chapter 4 verse 4. It says this, many of those who had heard the word believed. You notice that it says many of those who heard the word believed. It doesn't say many of those who saw the miracle believed. You know, because there was a message with the miracle, that's what was believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So in addition to, you know, up from the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, their numbers increased to 5,000, counting just the men. And so we have a miraculous adding that God does to the number of disciples on this day. Do you see what the word of God did? This man was healed and, and many believed. Most who believed didn't actually see the miracle, but they saw the result. They recognized the man and they saw that he was walking and leaping and praising God. So next time we'll talk a great deal about Peter's sermon. And then after that, we'll talk about how they handle the arrest and how the church deals with that. But first, I want to get to some very practical encouragements for us because there are some tremendous ones here. The first thing I want you to do is put yourself in the place of the lame man. Now, I know you want to be Peter in the story. I know that. You know, we've talked about this before, the fact that you read David and Goliath and, oh, you so want to be David. But really, the most fitting role for us in that scene is to be the Israelite army who needs a champion to go forward and conquer sin and death. 
Um, but here, we want to be Peter. We want to be the one who does the miracle, and we want to lift this man up, and we want to receive that gratitude and see his celebration. And indeed, to some extent, we are him, but we'll get to that momentarily. First and foremost, put yourself in the place of the lame man, because there's a parallel here. This man was born this way, and we ourselves are born lost. There's a great parallel here. No amount of therapy or medicine of the day was going to cure this man. There was no mindset, no attitude, no set of beliefs he could adopt to change his physical disability. And that's the way it is with all of us in our sinful state, in our rebellion to God. There's no amount of reform. There's no amount of begging. There's no amount of good works. There's no mindset. There's no therapy that will cure us of sin. You want to know why psychology is such a growing field in our world? And I'm not saying that psychology is not helpful. It can be helpful. But it's such a growing field is because people don't know the power of God to forgive sin. R.C. Sproul accounts a man that he knew that was a psychologist, and he says, I ought to put you on the payroll uh, with, with my uh, with my." psychological business. He, he was a psychiatrist and had many counselors and stuff on his payroll. And he said, I need to put you on the payroll because what most people are suffering from is guilt. <laughs> this is true. But there's no amount of, of therapy. There's no psychological analysis. There's, there's no amount of, of drugs that can cure us of sin. Just as helpless as this man was being born lame, so we are in our sin. This man had lived 40 years paralyzed, but that changed suddenly when the gospel of Jesus Christ came into his life. So it is with you today, only greater. See, this man was cured, but would go on to die. His life was greatly improved for probably 20 or 30 years, but ultimately he would face death and other difficulties the same as the rest of us. The greater miracle available is to be born again, to have eternal life and enter the kingdom of heaven. 20 to 30 years of a significantly improved life is a good thing, but it's a tiny thing compared to eternity with the Lord, free from sickness, free from death and sadness and stress and poverty and want, and most importantly, our sins. Every human being's greatest need is the need for eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. Because what awaits sin, the wages of sin, according to the Bible, is death. And that death is an eternal suffering under the wrath of God in a fiery, dreadful place called hell. And to this we know because we fear death, because death is an awful thing, and it is awful. Death is an intruder into this world, dragged into it by our sin. And this shows us, indeed, that this is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of of an angry God. There is no situation in which the remainder of your life can compare to an eternity in the presence of God. 
nor is there any situation so bad as to compare to paying the price for our sins in hell. Our sin is a greater problem than any physical infirmity or circumstance or trouble because as sinners we hang over the precipice of judgment and punishment not knowing at what day death will plunge us into that abyss. Therefore, this rebirth is the greater miracle. This rebirth is the thing to be sought. This faith in Jesus Christ that brings about a new life, an eternal life, is what needs to be sought. So my first encouragement to you this day is ask God to save you. Have you asked for help in your present troubles and difficulties? Has it occurred to you that the greater help that you need, that your present difficulties are pointing you to your need for an even greater solution? That is faith in Jesus Christ. Are you sufficiently humbled by your circumstances yet? Please be saved. Won't you be saved? Understand this is the blessing of God is that we would be turned from our sins, turned to Him in eternal salvation. He says this about it. He says, uh, God, having raised up His servant, Peter says at the end of his sermon, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the blessing of God. And notice the context of this. He says, and this is a promise all the way from back in Genesis chapter 12, in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. What is this blessing? This blessing is defined here. Being turned from our wickedness, being turned from our own sin and the penalty of it. This is the big thing. And this is what I hope you get. Now, you might have, you know, kind of, dozed off during that part because you thought, okay, I'm, I'm already saved. I don't need this, brother. I'm, I'm good. Um, I've already believed in Jesus Christ. Yeah, but you need to know how to proclaim this truth to others. And so I hope you it kind of, if you didn't listen to the last part because you're like, I've got that covered, rewind it, listen to it again, because you need to be able to explain it to someone else. That is a tremendous blessing to be involved in. So ask God to save you. And then my second encouragement to you is this, walk and leap and praise God. If you are one of those who has believed in Jesus Christ, you have trusted him, you have been born again, you have had your sins washed away, you must understand that the single greatest thing that could ever possibly happen to you has happened. And you should praise God for it. Christian, if somebody asks you how you are doing, I hope you say wonderful because that's true. Now I know sometimes the problems of life or whatever, the aches and pains of growing old or, or the difficulties of family, the struggles of job, the, the, you might be even be facing persecution. But do you understand if you have peace with God, if your sins are forgiven, all those things just fall away in infinitesimal tiny little bits compared to what you have in Christ. And so your answer always ought to be wonderful because your mind ought to be drawn to, you know what, despite what's going on in the world, 
I am in Christ, and he will return one day to reign upon the earth, and all these present difficulties will be gone, and I will be in him. Suddenly the politics, the family, the work, the debt, the sickness, even death are minor things. The major thing having been handled, act like it, live like it. Listen to this verse from Romans chapter 8, what I think to be the pinnacle of Scripture in Romans chapter 8. He asks the question, and it's a rhetorical question because he's just laid all this out clearly in chapter 8. He says, Who then shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And obviously the answer is nothing. None of those things. None of those things will touch us in Jesus Christ. Walk like it. Leap like it. Praise God like it's all true. Because you know it is if you've truly been saved by Jesus Christ. And then finally, the third thing here is offer what you have. Put yourself in the position of Peter. Silver and gold I don't have. Now, you may not have the occasion. You may not have the faith or the circumstance in which God's going to miraculously heal someone. But you know what he has? What you have every moment of every hour available to every human being you meet, no matter how big or how small, no matter how wealthy or how impoverished, no matter how how troubled by life, no matter how how great and blessed they seem to be in their life, you have something to offer. Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. Now let me ask you a question. Was what that man received better than any silver and gold? Bet it was. Salvation in Jesus Christ better than anything else you could offer someone, including physical healing? It is. Absolutely. There's nothing more precious than this in Christ. He described the kingdom of heaven. He said, it's like this. He, he said, it's like a man who found a treasure in a field. And having found it, then he buried it back in a field. He went and he sold all that he had and purchased that field. That's what salvation is. It's worth everything we have. And that's clearly how Jesus presented it. Offer what you have, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing you can offer any human being ever. Let's pray. Father God, I praise you and I thank you so much for what you have done. And Lord, as we do acts of mercy, as we, as we do service to people in our community, as we pray for them, as we help heal them, as we provide for their needs, which we should as your people, May it always come with the gospel truth. Lord, embolden all of us hearing this message today and reading these scriptures. Embolden all of us to offer what we have to give the gospel message to a lost and dying world. Father, I pray that you would work mightily through all of us that are sharing in this message today to make yourself known Make yourself great in the world and go forth with us, Lord, as we preach, as we share and heal hearts and cause the blind to see, cause the lame in spirit to walk. Lord, I praise you. Thank you for this day. And I pray for you to work through your servant and his message in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I hope that's been beneficial to you. As you saw, 
on the notes here tons and tons of cross-references. Those are available if you go to our website, whitesrun.org. And you can also email us with questions, comments, concerns, whatever it is. I ask you, please email us. We actually respond to these personally, and we've been able to help some people uh, along these lines. We can even help you find a Bible-believing, like-minded church in your area. It's not always easy, but it can be done, and we'll help you do it. So email us uh, or visit us at whitesrun.org. May God bless you richly and may he make you a witness of the King.